Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 1 as we continue our look at this book. These last two verses of chapter 1, which are pretty hard-hitting, and they amount to a substantial gut check. And quite frankly, uh, we should not be quick to gloss over them or, or move beyond them. We, they deserve to be reflected upon. So James, the brother of our Lord, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostle's pastor, if you will, writes this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for all of your word, but this word in particular, Lord, grant that we would receive and respond appropriately, rightly, that we would not be quick to defend ourselves, but that we would let ourselves be laid bare by the scalpel that is your word, that we might have life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, brothers and sisters, we saw last week that in his discussion of traits of true Christian faith, James makes clear that at the heart of Christian living, at the heart of the Christian life, at the heart of the faith, is the matter of rightly receiving and responding to the Word. And James gets progressively more practical and specific in his call to respond appropriately to the Word of God. So, for example, in verse 21, he refers to accepting the Word. In verse 22, it becomes doing the Word. In verse 25, it becomes do the law. And it reaches its culmination here in verses 26 and 27 in which James provides three ways in which believers can do the law. In which believers can be doers of the word. Now right here in verses 26 and 27, James gives three manifestations of what it looks like to be a doer of the word. And he's introducing or touching on ideas that he's going to come back to in the rest of the book. 
In, in fact, the, the three concepts of controlling one's tongue, showing concern for the helpless, and avoiding worldliness, this really does lay out and set the agenda for pretty much the rest of the book. The idea that is presented here becomes, if you would, the chief motif of this book. Namely, that true religion is manifest in a lifestyle of obedience to God. True religion is manifest in a lifestyle of obedience to God. And that becomes something that we we really need to, to sit with. We, we are, all of us, tempted to think that my faith is proven, my faith is shown by how frequently I come through these doors. By how much I flip into the offering plate. By how loudly I sing. By how many special events I come to. By how many notes I take of my sermons. Of... My daily devotions. We tend to think that the manifestation of a true faith is found in our acts of piety gathered in worship or that it's manifest or found in the inward dispositions that we think somehow never come out. And James here he, quite frankly, goes in the completely opposite direction. True religion is manifest in a lifestyle of obedience to God. What James says here, he says starkly, but nothing he says here is actually novel in Scripture. For example, John, Jesus in John 14 tells us, if you love me, come to church every Sunday, sing with gusto, give, all, give 10%. No, what does Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. In fact, when we're told that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. It spelt, scripture spells it out for us. For this is the love of God, we're told in 1 John 5, 3. What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments. Okay. And I love the words of the old King James. And this concept resonates throughout scripture. As Samuel tells a disobedient and rebellious Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Hath the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obeying the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than is the fat of rams. What does that mean? 
It means that the Old Testament sacrificial system that was implemented to make atonement for sins exists because obedience doesn't. But if you're asking God what he wants, he wants your obedience. But it is a problem in the hearts of man that we trust in and we put a lot of emphasis in our external acts of devotion. Which is why the scriptures are replete with the condemnations and the denunciations of mere empty ritual. I mean, it's all over the Bible. All over the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament alike. And I think it gets hit on the head, the nail gets hit on the head by Jesus in Matthew 15 when he says, uh, these people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so they worship me in vain. Ouch. Paul gets to the heart of this. In Romans 12, that famous pivot point where he spent the previous 11 chapters elaborating on the tender mercies, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, and in chapter 12, verse 1, in view then of God's mercies, what? I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your Spiritual act of worship. And brothers and sisters, I am not at all detracting when I say this from what we do here. Singing, praying, reading God's word, preaching God's word, the sacraments, all this together, this is corporate worship. But, but, but we must never, I mean, don't, don't undermine this, con- this contrary fact. In the New Testament, that's never called worship. What is called worship? Presenting your body as a living sacrifice. So, your holiness matters to God. Now, of course, real quick, James is not here in verses 26 and 27 stating all that the true worship of the living God entails. He's not. Because God has appointed his son as our great prophet, priest, and king, and Jesus as head of the church has revealed through his spirit doctrines that are to be believed, practices that are to be engaged, Rituals that are to be observed, we call them sacraments. Okay, so we have things that are, we are to do. But what James is here telling us is that religion without the things he mentions that doesn't have at its core a heart concern manifested in a transformed life, that that is nothing. Religion. Religion. Then, like now, religion carries the idea of your 
formalized, institutionalized acts of devotion that come from formal dogmas to be believed, rituals to be observed. Religion is religion. We know what that is. And many of you may have heard a, a saying that, that got popular in, 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 the, in the Jesus people movement, but it's, it's relationship, not religion. I don't have a religion. I have a relationship. You heard that? Okay, that's well-intentioned but wrong. Okay, the, the fact of the matter is, ours is a religion. Jesus is king and he's put in place things for us to believe, dogma, things for us to do, ritual. Okay, he does. But, but, but it's well-intentioned and, it's, and it's, it's wrong or at least off-base, but it does have truth to it. You see, true Christianity, true religion is different than the religions of the world. In which way? The relationship and what's going on. The orientation. You see, all religions seek relationship with the deity. I don't care if we're talking about the true religion Christianity or, or, or the religion of Molech. They want peaceful, right relationship with their deity. But they're seeking relationship. And so they do the ritual seeking peace with their God. However, in the true religion, we love him because he first loved us. And so we have a religion that flows from a relationship. Our starting point is not that we would get peace with God, but that we have peace with God. And therefore, as his people, we live a life that is a city on a hill, that is the salt of the earth. So the orientation, starting point, end point, goal, everything is different. We start from the vantage point that there is relationship that we have because of Jesus. And when you read these words, his religion is worthless. Whoa. How do you feel? You feel kind of hopeless? It is possible to interpret these words in a rather graceless fashion. As if he's saying here, y'all are just wasting your time if, if, if you don't have strict control over every little thing you do. And if you're not doing it, you're just wasting your time and you're on your way to hell. Well, he's going to visit, revisit these topics later. And even James admits that if anyone is able to fully control their tongue... They're a perfect person. So he acknowledges that we're sinners. In fact, his book closes on the concept of forgiveness and restoration. Okay? So, so don't go out there and, and be all depressed because, man, I'm not perfect. A slip, you know, I, my tongue slipped just this morning, you might say. And, oh, man, am I just wasting my time? No, there, there's grace. 
The issue here is one of what characterizes you. In all of this, we sin in many ways. We stumble in many ways. That's what God's word teaches us. But what is characterizing us? So, three things right here that he mentions that he's going to come back to. So I don't want to uh, beat, a, beat the horse dead yet. Because I, I want to have something left to say when he talks about him later. Because he's just introducing it here. The first thing he talks about is controlling one's tongue, which itself is shorthand for having self-control. The first thing he says is that if you don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving your heart. And that means your religion is worthless. The word translated worthless here is the word that's used in the New Testament to refer to the vanity, the meaninglessness engaged associated with idolatry. And so he's saying this religion that you have that doesn't manifest itself in a transformed life, it's, it's just as worthless. It's, it's, you may as well be an idolater. We are taking the Lord's name in vain. Self-control. The Bible says a lot about our words, does it not? Consider Proverbs 10.19. When words are many, transgression is what? There. Sin is present. Ephesians 4.29. Everyone knows that verse. I remember, I remember that was the proof text given to me that you know we shouldn't say cuss words. And, and, and surely that's included, but if, if you limit Ephesians 4.29 to just cuss words, you, you have grossly underestimated what this verse is calling you to do and telling you to abstain from. What does Ephesians 4.29 say? Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do you see how that's going far beyond? That's a lot more comprehensive than simply don't use potty language. Though that's... Because Jesus sums it up in Matthew 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he gives this ominous warning in verse 34, 35. I tell you, On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. You see, this is a, James used this as a helpful Uh, a shorthand for the larger concept of self-control, which the Bible calls us to consistently. But the reason why our words are an acceptable shorthand of that larger concept is that's the part of us that we so often weaponize and think we haven't hurt anybody or done no harm because we haven't physically attacked or physically destroyed. But our words are used all the time against people. 
We use our words to maneuver, to, to advance our own agendas. They, it is the guide for our actions in many times. And he's saying that in view of God's mercies, in view of God's grace, in view of the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, because as he said just a few verses before, he's brought us forth by the word of truth. And so if the word of truth is in you, this should manifest itself in self-control to rein in, to bridle our speech So we don't use our most deadly weapon against people. Especially against our brothers. But that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because once again, you could be tempted to say, I'm not a talkative person. I don't don't say much at all anyway. I've got that one done. Check. But remember... This is shorthand for the larger concept of being self-controlled. Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. 2 Timothy 1, 7. But God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of what? Come on, say it out loud if you know it. But of power. And what? And love. And what's the last one? Self-control. And if I was in a, a gospel church, this would be like a whole different, that would have been a whole different exercise. <laughs> what's a requirement of a would-be elder? In Titus 1.8, he must be hospitable, one who loves good, who is self-controlled. Paul himself says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Self-control. It is the last of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, what is the fruit of the Spirit? We won't go through that exercise again, but it's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, and what? Self-control. What God wants from you is a life that is aware that there's a sinful nature within you and that it is always seeking to manifest itself. The sinful nature is always seeking the promotion of self. And we will do whatever we can to promote self. And so the process of mortification, that is, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and the process of vivification that is living by the Spirit necessarily entails the willed engagement of my spirit with my flesh so that I bring it under control. That is self-control. That is controlling my tongue. This is what God wants. Second, He wants us to show concern for the helpless. Now, many of us, I I personally, you know, I I get tired of of people abusing this passage. And and, and the only thing they think that characterizes true religion is their commitment to to being a social do-gooder. 
If you're going to talk about how this passage teaches that we're to show concern for the helpless, you need to continue to the end of the clause because he's also concerned with holiness. But let's not look over that. God does command our commitment to helping the helpless. I, I love this, this clause here. Uh, you, this is rich in Old Testament imagery right here. Uh, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Okay, we may gloss that and read that, and what that means is that I should just show compassion to people. And that's true. But it means more than than having compassion or feeling compassion. Do you know what it means to visit? I'll give you a hint. As wonderful as it is when we show up to visit someone who's been homebound or we show up to visit someone who's... And, and we're just chatting, and that's great, and that's wonderful. But there's an Old Testament image here. What does it mean in Scripture whenever we're told that God visits his people? It's showing up to help. It's showing up to rescue. It's showing up to save. Now, obviously, we can't do it that way. But it's more than just being nice. It's a commitment to regarding the have-nots, those on the outskirts and margins that have absolutely nothing to offer us to benefit us. The example here is Christ. He showed up and he was tender-hearted and merciful to the absolute dregs of society. And what do we do? Do we have a heart that is concerned for the have-nots in our midst? The Old Testament, once again, is replete with examples of how God is concerned for the fatherless, for the widow, for the sojourner, for the people who have nothing and no one on their side to advocate and fight for them. That is who he's talking about here. And of course, by referencing the extreme, he means everyone along the extreme. Do we have a heart of compassion that when we see suffering that we can do something about that we engage? How the Bible speaks of poverty is complex and it's not to be reduced to one verse because the Bible speaks much about not facilitating the folly of a fool. But is our disposition... Our fundamental disposition characterized by compassion. Remember, remember what, he's, what he tells Micah. We all know this passage. You know, Micah rhetorically asks, what, what do we have to do to please God? Do, do I have to offer my firstborn son? What will it take to make God happy? And you know the answer. He has shown you. Oh, man. What is good and what does the Lord require of you? 
to do justice, and to love mercy. Do we love mercy? Oh, all of us loves mercy being shown to us. But are we like the unmerciful servant, so quick to want mercy for us when we'll go choke the life out of someone for a small debt? Rhetorically speaking. Far be it from us. Compassion for those who are helpless. And then lastly... Verse 27, the third pillar of true religion, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And James is going to talk a lot about avoiding worldliness later in his book. But the concept of personal holiness is not foreign to the teaching of Scripture. It's the thing we probably like least because it conjures up connotations of being stodgy and and cold and, I don't know, dare I say legalistic, but the Bible commands our holiness. We are saved by God to be a holy people. From the very beginning, the Lord is seeking a holy people, a people that are set apart and consecrated for His purposes. This is why He leads a people out of Egypt It's why he leads a people out of bondage to their sin. It is why he has saved. It is not merely the teaching of James. And so we must remember that James is to be interpreted in the light of Scripture, and Scripture is consistent with Scripture. That's why in 1 Peter 1, Peter says that he who called us is holy, so we must be holy. The author of Hebrews tells us that we must strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. As Paul tells his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, God saved us and called us to a holy life. All right. So what James is teaching here is not foreign. But what God is concerned about is, are you seeking to be holy? He has saved you and declared you holy in justification. And now, as his child, he calls you to live a life of holiness, to put aside the deeds of the flesh, to take every thought captive, to set your mind on things that are above, to not gratify all the sinful desires that we have, To not ingest those things that inflame our sinful passions. Did you you know that's, that's part of holiness? Not watching and listening to the things or participating in the things that only serve to inflame your sinful passions? And what that is may be different for each of us according to our personality. So I'm not trying to be legalistic here. But the fact of the matter is, is if you are to engage in an act of warfare against your sinful nature by the help of the Holy Spirit, that means you need to tactically apply wisdom to your life situation and figure out what is it that is tempting me to sin? What are the situations in which I find myself most likely to commit the very acts that the Lord here says, I must not? And take the appropriate countermeasures. 
You see, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Hallelujah. But the faith that saves is a faith that is living and active, and that faith sanctifies because we were created for good works. We were created to be a people distinct from the peoples, a holy people for his own possession. And so, brothers and sisters, understand this. Your participation in church events, it's good, and it matters. It really does. But the proof of the sincerity and genuineness of of our faith is not found in, in coming here on Sunday. The proof is found in a life of obedience to the Lord. That's the, that's the heart. And where there's stumbling, brothers and sisters, run to Jesus. He loves to forgive. And he will restore. You're not wasting your time every time you stumble. But evaluate your heart. What, what characterizes you? And, and, and what have you been hoping as proof of your faith? Let the word of God orient you and me aright. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for James's forthrightness. We ask, O oh God, that we would humble ourselves before your word and allow your spirit to sanctify us in our affections and our desires. We ask, O oh God, that he would sanctify our behaviors. Grant that we would have the faithfulness to live as becomes children of God. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen.